If you're anything like me, creating a podcast is a lot of work, putting together concepts and finding people to speak on and affirm the soft black women, as well as fighting imposter syndrome. This podcast is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor is a free, easy to use platform for creating, uploading, and distributing your podcast. There are creative tools that will help you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor guides you through the process of creating a name and even designing the cover. Recording episodes is made easy with their library of background music and transition sounds. You can even earn money on your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. If you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello and thank you for listening to Dear Soft Black Woman. My name is Rose J. Percy and this is a gentle landing space for those who are seeking softness in the world. While there's something here for everyone who is seeking gentle landing, this is a space that radically centers the experiences of Black women. Today I'm excited to have Dr. Christina Cleveland here to talk to us about her latest book, God is a Black Woman. Christina Cleveland is a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She is the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal and its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journeys toward liberation. As a weaver of Black liberation and the sacred feminine, Dr. Cleveland integrates psychology, theology, storytelling, and art to stimulate our spiritual imaginations. And now she has just put out this this book, God is a Black Woman, through Harper One. And in this book, she talks about her 400-mile walking pilgrimage across central France in search of ancient Black Madonna statues. And now you can go on to read more of Dr. Christina Cleveland's extensive bio on her website at christinacleveland.com. And you can also get connected to her work through Patreon. The link is also on her website. Um, but in this conversation, we're going to talk about her book and the themes that, as I read the book and journeyed with her, um, connect to the message of the soft black woman and the conversations and questions we center here in this podcast. Um, if it's not super obvious in my voice as I'm talking to Dr. Christina Cleveland, I'm a huge fan and I followed her journey for so many years. And in a lot of ways, her work has inspired and directly um resulted in some of the conclusions I have in the work that I hold sacred. And so I am honored to bring forth this conversation facilitated by the nerdy fangirl within me. I hope you enjoy. I hope you are inspired and challenged. And for the soft black women listening, I hope you find in Dr. Christina Cleveland's journey, the inspiration you need to become more free in the world. Hello, and thank you to those of you who are listening. I am so excited um, to have with me Dr. Christina Cleveland. And um, 
those of you who have like followed my journey, you know that I will always drop a Christina Cleveland quote here and there. <laughs> and so you know how important it is to me, how important her work is to me and how um, honored I am to have her in conversation with me today. And so Dr. Christina Cleveland, hello, <laughs> welcome. Thank you for having me here. And I'm glad you're here too. So welcome to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, before we begin, um, can you tell us uh, who you are in this season and who are you becoming? I am a creator and an artist. And I think of myself as a weaver because mm -hmm. I love to integrate everything. I integrate my social, sci my social science, formal educational background with my spirituality and theology, sort of informally acquired background with um, just really creative, witchy, avant-garde ways of looking at the world. I'm always looking for, I'm always looking to see beyond what is apparent. And so I'd say I'm becoming more and more connected to the land. I live on land and I spend a lot of time with my hands in the snow right now, because it's winter, but in the dirt when I have access to it. And I'm really nourished by it. I just love that so much. Um, as someone who identifies strongly as a plant mom, um, the mm -hmm. idea of connecting with nature um, is also very important to me. I'm not so much a fan of the outside, but I'm, I'm you know, it's growing on me. <laughs> well, the good news is nature's not just outside. Yes, yes. Nature is wherever we go. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I have found, though, that the more I love my body, the more I love the land and vice versa. Because I am the land, you know. And so, you know, I, I know in the Christian traditions, we came from dirt. Mm. And there's something just really poetic about that. Mm. Yes. And I think it's so interesting how, like, in in so many ways, like we um, develop a distrust of dirt, <laughs> a distrust, uh, you know, we, like it becomes dirty. It becomes something you want as, you know, as far away from you as possible um, in order to be clean and good and pure. Um, meanwhile, like that's where our nourishment comes from and our food. And yeah, it's very interesting. I can remember, I don't remember my mom. My mom wasn't the most she liked a neat, clean house, but she wasn't one of those super persnickety moms. But I remember like my grandmother being like, don't track that dirt in the house. You know, like just the sorts of things that we hear mm -hmm. growing up um, that teach us something. Or I just remember with the same grandmother washing collard greens 50 times to get the dirt out. <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> Which is just maybe not a bad thing. You know what I mean? But that, those are the sorts of associations I have with the natural world is let's try to cleanse ourselves of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it's like the, the, uh, the phrase, uh, you smell like outside. Oh yeah. <laughs> that one in a while oh my goodness <laughs> and like yeah as if, as if that's a bad thing you know mm -hmm. so yeah yeah well um there are a lot of reasons why I'm so excited to be talking to you um but of recent importance it would have to be this book God is a Black Woman 
um, while I was typing it out, um, I was like, oh, there's no subtitle. It's just God is a Black woman. That's it. (laughs) That's the title. Um, So yes, can you tell us a bit about um, the journey that prompted you to write this book? Yeah, yeah. You know, this book feels um, like one of those books that if, if at the end of my life, I write a memoir or something, this will count as probably the book of my life at least, and I'm, I'm halfway through my life now I'm 41. Um, so who knows how long I'll live, but maybe about as long as I have lived so far. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) and just like, I, I feel like I started questioning this God that I inherited in my Christian context and in the broader American context, um, as early as when I was in second grade, when I was trying to make sense of why the same God who supposedly loves all of us killed everyone in the flood in Noah's Ark. Like I just could not, I was shook when I heard that, (laughs) you know, I was just like, I don't get it. This does not compute. I got kicked out of Sunday school that day. um, So I learned very quickly that those sorts of questions and musings are not going to be tolerated. Um, But in a sense, this feels like the book I've been wanting to write since I was seven. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, as I became an adult and I grew into agency, that still took a while because I was in a fairly patriarchal Christian context and family context. And so, you know, some of the natural individuation that people engage in in high school and college, I didn't really have access to that because of the way that my relationship um, with my parents was um, sort of constricted some of that, some of that individuality and that liberation but in my, you know, in my late twenties and thirties, as I really started to like, look at my friend's relationship with their parents and seeing mine, I'm like, Oh, I'm like, huh, you get to do whatever you want for your birthday. How interesting. And so that's when I think I started to gather the agency um, within myself to start really asking questions. Um, and so I think, you know, 10 years ago was a major, 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 um, catalytic moment in my life when Trayvon Martin was killed and all the people in my Christian circles and all the people in my academic circles, which weren't necessarily Christian, but you know, everyone's like, Oh, we love you. We care about you. Inclusion, reconciliation, all these same people could not handle it. Just literally could not handle hearing the black perspective on this at the, at the time, ambiguous, you know, what relatively ambiguous, what happened? We don't really know. Um, And so that was a huge wake up for me. And I know for a lot of black millennials and realizing, yeah, this world's not safe. And they've been talking about diversity, but that doesn't mean Jack at this point. Um, And then of course, me too, and just an awakening around gender and the church too movement. And so it was sort of this growing awakening where I realized, you know, everything that is considered sacred in this world is the opposite of who I am as a black woman. You have to be a white man or, and I saw in myself, the more I approximated whiteness and maleness, the more, um, the higher up the ranks and the house nigga sort of hierarchy I could go. I was still on a plantation, but I would get treated differently so much so that I thought it was free freedom. (laughs) Yes. And so that's when it was started to break down and it's like, eh, this is not freedom. And also I don't get to be myself. Yeah. So it's really kind of like a suicide, a cultural suicide and homicide. 
Yes. Suicide by homicide, almost something like that, you know? Yes. I think what, what for me was like one of the gifts of this book is that you name those things so plainly and it's like not hidden behind euphemisms. It's like, no, this is some fuck shit. We got to talk about it. (laughs) And like, it's like, there's something about just like hearing those, like, like the very clear um, language that allows people to access, like, if you're reading this and this sounds like your context, get out. Like you need, you need, you need an out. You need to get out of here. You got to seek freedom. Um, I mean, I remember watching the movie Get Out. I think it came out in 2015 or somewhere around there. I can't remember Mm -hmm. exactly when, around 2015. And that was when I was, I was exiting a lot of those spaces very intentionally at that point. And I remember I could not sleep for two weeks when I saw that movie because it was too real. Um, and I could yeah. see, I could see people in my community in the characters and I could see some of the black people I had left behind in the black characters. Mm. And I could see some of the white people I had fired in the white characters, you know, and I was just like, this is too real. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a reason why most people don't ever escape the plantation. It's actually really hard. It's really hard to grow, to be born in a prison and realize that you're, that A, it's a prison, B, you're too sacred for this, and C, there is an escape route. Because you just, that's all you know. It's all you know. It's all you know. And like, one of the things I remember from that movie. And I also, I didn't watch it when it first came out. Like I waited so many years. People were like, Rose, you need to watch this movie. And I was like, I can't because I know it's going to make me scared. And if I get scared, I'm going to want to leave these places that I'm in. Um, Yeah. It's like, I knew there was something in that movie for me, but I wasn't ready for it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking about uh, the scenes you see where like the, the white people at the party, are just like fawning over this black man. And like, mm-hmm. it all feels, it all sounds and it feels like, oh, they're praising him. They love him, you know? Mm-hmm. And really what they want is to break him off, like different parts of him for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, there's so much of your story um, through this book where you are t- basically sharing, having experienced that similar thing, like as a black woman who is educated and um, can articulate issues of racism for white people, that commodification, that journey. Oh yeah. There's so many parallels there. Yeah. I mean, I think a huge turning point for me was, you know, watching that movie or maybe not a turning point because I had already started moving, but it was so affirming, you know? And I was just like, wow, how interesting that as a black woman, the movie that affirms me the most is a horror movie about my life. But at least I'm like, I'm seen. I'm like, Jordan Peele sees me. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes. I feel seen. And it's like, wow, that's so interesting, right? It's not a fairy. The movie's not a fairy tale. The movie's not even a comedy. The movie's not a romantic comedy. It's not a romance. It's a horror movie. It is. Um, So that was really powerful. And then I think around that same time, I was teaching for the first time my Martin Luther King and Malcolm X class. And so for the first time, I was digging really deep into Malcolm X's life. And I remember him talking about feeling like a mascot to white people. And I was like, Ooh, that's me Mm. too. You know what I mean? Cause you're kind of like, Oh yeah, we love you. We're going to give you some space on stage and we're going to like support you and cheer for cheer for you, cheer with you. But you're really just a mascot and you don't have any power. You don't have any voice. 
and you're kind of a puppet that they can manipulate. And the mascot really leads the cheer for the establishment. Yeah. So it was just when I was reading more about Malcolm X and reading more of his writings and his speeches, I was like, oh, you know, this is. And then I love when he in 1960, I think it was 1967, it might be 1963, but um, he was in Berkeley speaking at UC Berkeley and he just said, I don't think white people and black people can be friends. (laughs) I think black people and white people can be friendly, but can't be friends. And I was, I remember I was on the airplane watching that and I was like, "Uh Oh, um, most of my friends are white or there are black people who practice a lot of whiteness at that point, you know? Oh, that is so real. That is so real. Um, I think there are some, you know, some theological, like things I, I've, I've wrestled with and like, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't, I haven't read much of Malcolm X. Like that's on my list of things to do in life. Um, but like hearing you talk about him saying white people and black people can't be friends makes me think about like, just like some of the wrestling I, I did with myself thinking about like the churches I was a part of that took communion every week. And like, mm-hmm. like here we are breaking bread together, promising to be community, exactly. mm-hmm. promising that like when you you are broken and your flesh is attacked in the world that I will be there feeling it with you and like and then me realizing like wait a minute like this is literally this is not this is this is doing nothing for me yeah it's bullshit I mean it li- it's just yeah I remember having that experience that same experience in church and yeah in the early 2010s. In my way, you know, I was a little passive aggressive in the sense that my, my, the only way I could speak about it was in my blog. So it's like, my blog was like a big subtweet to the church. (laughs) (laughs) I was at this church, but rather than leaving the church, I kind of just needed to, and I think that was just part of my process where it's like, I needed to find my voice, you know, but it was funny because when I finally did leave the church, you know, and had a conversation with a pastor. And this is the church in my book that was I call it the Little Plantation on the Prairie Church. Um, when I finally did leave the church, the pastor was like, yeah, it's probably good that you're leaving anyway, because like your last 10 blog posts have basically been about how much you hate this church. You know, <laughs> but like, you know, I didn't ever call the church out, but it was just like something would happen at the church and then I would write about it, you know? And, <laughs> and so um, <laughs> so he he knew it was about the church, you know, even if, you know, my whole blog community didn't know, you know? So, but it's just, yeah, having those realizations. And I think I wrote one, something about how we should just cancel communion. That was like one of my blog posts. <laughs> Cause I was like, in, until, until it's real, let's just not even do it. Yes. Um, which is, yeah, I can resonate with what you're saying where you're in, and especially with so much black death, you know, and even with another kid in Minneapolis this past week mm-hmm. being shot and killed by the police. You know, it's like, what does this even mean if, if it doesn't mean something to this, if, if it doesn't, if it doesn't, if it's not good news to this situation and how is it good news? Yeah. At the end of the day, like, it's just performative. performative. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I even think about the liturgies um, and like so much confession, like we confess that we have sinned against blah, 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 blah. blah. And I'm just like, great. Like <laughs> you're, you're saying the words, like, 
what does it look like? Anyways, I'm, I'm going to stop myself from asking that question because I realize I'm talking to an audience that I know <laughs> that I'm not even really supposed to be thinking about in this podcast. Wow, wow we hear you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, like, as I'm reflecting on your ability to like write this book, to share your truth, like to use like such like emotive and strong language, like I, I noticed that you like used the book Black Imagination by Natasha Marin. And, and like that book has been like a cornerstone for me in this season, like from the first page where it says, like, close your eyes, make the white gaze disappear. Um, you know, it's just a, it's been great to like have that as like a, like a way to practice the Black imagination and to continue to center like our communities in these conversations. And so I'm like wondering, like um, in your process of like writing this book, like how do you, um, bring yourself back to this place that you, where you can remember who you're writing for. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm quite ideologically driven <laughs> 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 to my detriment, but it's also a great gift, you know? Um, so once I decide this is what I want to do, I usually stick to that and I'm not usually swayed off of it very easily. Um, and I think I, got sick and tired of writing for anybody other than black women. Mm. Uh, Before I met you, I used to, um, when I lived in North Carolina, I used to run this little um, organization out of my house. I moved it. I moved to North Carolina to, um, to work at Duke and I rented um, a home sight unseen because I was coming from Minneapolis. When I got to the place, I realized it was a four bedroom, three bath, like almost 3,000 square foot farmhouse on 10 acres in the woods in Chapel Hill. And it was wow. so affordably priced that I didn't know what it, how big it was and what it was until I got there. Just turns out the owners weren't trying to make money off this. They just, so it was very affordable. So I, I decided to turn it into what I call the haven for weary women of color. And so mm. I may, I opened my home to any woman of color, mostly in the circles I was in, which was in kind of white Christian spaces who needed, who were tired and needed a place to rest. So sometimes people would come on their sabbaticals. Sometimes people would come after they just quit a job or got fired from a job. Sometimes people would just come because they had very little vacation money and this was a free place for them to come. I ended up hosting about 147 women in less than a year and a half. And one of the things that I I reflect on when I look back at that time is that I literally created, first of all, I identified as a weary person. And then I created a home for weary women of color. But that makes me wonder who was, who were we centering in our lives if we were always weary and needing a haven? Yeah, literally from our work. You know what I mean? The people who came, it was people who needed a haven from their work with CCDA or Christianity Today or some Christian university, a Gordon Conwell or you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and so it just so now I think I got so fed up from hearing these stories. Women would come and cry until two o'clock in the morning telling me about the latest horrible anti-black thing that happened at their white Jesus church. Right. So I think I just got to the point where I was like, I'm so tired of this. 
And I remember when I left North Carolina, I had just finished about two and a half years of intensive trauma therapy. And this is the trauma therapy that I did in this book. I don't really talk about it. I name it. I name it Mm -hmm. at one point, you know, but I don't really talk about that journey, which is a whole nother book, you know? Um, But obviously I would never have been able to even have the spiritual imagination to imagine that God is a black woman if I hadn't done so much trauma therapy to get out from defense and into offense, you know? Mm. But I remember at the end of my trauma therapy, I had, I had made Haven of Weary Women of Color mugs and I had two left and I was about to move. And so I gave them to my two main therapists and said, Hey, I'm giving these, these to you because I'm no longer weary. And also I don't care about women. The women of color doesn't have, is not a meaningful, meaningful term to me anymore. (laughs) You know, but I was like, because of the work I've done with you, I now see that as I move forward in the world, who I center has to be different. And that's going to impact how weary I am. Now there's some things as a black woman, I just have to deal with because I live in the world. And then there's some things I was choosing to deal with because I was staying on the plantation. And those are two separate wearinesses, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I think when, when I finally got to the point where I was like, I'm going to be centering black women and people can take it or leave it. I, that was clear when I, when I was negotiating my contract with Harper, you know, it was just like, this is going to be a book for, for black women. And it was funny because my editor was like, well, can you say something to white women? She wanted me to say something to white women in chapter two. I was like, no. No, <laughs> I'll say something to them later, but, um, it mainly, cause I don't want this work to be appropriated. <laughs> so it's more like I'm caring for black women and writing this chapter about white women, <laughs> you know, yes. but um, I mean, there were, I would have made a lot more money writing a book about the black Madonna that white, that white women loved. That's very true. But that wasn't even a temptation really. Cause I was just like, I have to write the book that I need. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. And like one of the things that I find myself like asking and thinking about is like as I'm reading like your journey of like visiting all these different Black Madonnas like in France. And I'm just like something about like these like these these like um, images of Black women like in these sacred spaces in like white people's country and literally i mean in france might be the most racist country on the planet oh i'm haitian you don't gotta tell me super racist yeah super super racist and as i've gotten to know more black people there i've seen that too because i don't experience it because i'm light-skinned and i'm american and i speak english and they're class markers in my patagonia jacket and whatever right and Mm -hmm. so i get treated totally differently but france is like it might be the most racist place honor yeah yeah like Mm -hmm. i'm just thinking about like these images of like the sacred black feminine and like wondering and like and like worrying about like what if like people read this and they skip over our like affirmation of our dignity and move on to just commodifying us like Mm -hmm. you tell the story of uh, our lady of the sick and like the ways that like People came colonize that that whole mm-hmm. experience to create something that they can make money off of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I thought I thought a bit about that um, as I wrote and as I as I've journeyed towards 
the Black Madonna and the Sacred Black Feminine, part of the reason why I shied away from calling her a goddess or calling mm-hmm. her, and I wanted to start with sacred, sacred Black Feminine. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it's because I wanted to really affirm the sacredness of Black women and like make it a little harder for people to just be like, oh, like Black Mammy God come save me, you know, make me feel good. Let me Mm. drink from your breast. Um, And so that was part of it. Also, when I chose the cover image for the, for the book, um, I wanted, I wanted it to be a dark skinned woman. I didn't want it to, I didn't want her to look super ethereal and like, oh, she's a black light or she's an, she's an archetype. You know, I wanted her to look rounded enough, you know, um, and human human enough. And then I also didn't want anyone who looked skinny. I didn't want like a thin person. I mean, so there was, and I also didn't want anyone who looked like a mammy, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was like all of these. And so it's like, I'm thinking about all these things, even as I'm bringing the book into the world. And also I was deeply trying to connect with the subversiveness of the black Madonna and the fact that Yes, people have commodified her and also she's still powerful. Yes. And I think getting, trying to control every, like I was like, let me, let me identify the thoughtful ways that I can steward this, this book and this idea and this story into the world. And then how can I let go of everything else that's really out of my control and not play God? Mm. Because she's got this. And for the first time in my life, I believe in a black female God, which basically means it's handled. That's the best thing about believing in the sacred black feminine <laughs> is, is somebody I can actually trust to get yes. the job done. Yes. And so it's like, well, this is her story. Yes. And I have to just relinquish. It's all, I guess it's probably, I mean, from pe- people that I know say it's kind of like having a kid. Where it's like, you have the baby, you carry the baby, you pour everything into the baby, and then it goes into this world. And it's a big, scary world out there. And you can't control everything that happens to your child. Yeah. You have to just give it, you know, give it to God. (laughs) Yes. Like, you got to be willing to let go. Um, Yeah, you can be intentional, but that's only going to get you so far. And at the end of the day, you have to be like, Hey, this is God's child too. You know? Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, like as you're, um, as I'm thinking about like sacred black feminine, like the, the phrase black girl magic came to mind. Mm-hmm. And like, I have a very complicated relationship with that phrase because mm-hmm. that's been like weaponized and used against me to be like, Oh girl, you can do it. You can handle anything and everything. Cause you're strong. You're the, you, you know, you're black girl magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and how much like that phrase, like it hides, like it hides the work. It hides the often hides, like our journey towards gaining certain skills or gaining our certain, humanity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, what's unique about this phrase of like the sacred black feminine is like, there's so much humanity infused and like the, like you do not let, at least in your writing, like I noticed you you do not let the divinity and the humanity be separate from each other, but so intertwined. Yeah. We're sacred. That doesn't mean we're not human, Mm -hmm. but I I agree with you. Um, Black girl magic is such a problematic term in the way it's used. It Mm -hmm. was, I think um, designed to be a blessing and an affirmation 
Um, but I, I recently saw someone on social media saying like, I'm going to do black girl mediocre. <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh. Yes. And actually I'm part of a group of women that every day on Slack, we're, we try to share one thing we did intentionally mediocre that day. Um, just to give ourselves a break. Um, and I'm definitely someone who needs to be in that group because it's mm. very hard for me to do anything that's just okay. It always has to be the best, even if I'm the only one who sees it. <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, and so yeah, I mean, I think I think the whole concept, at least for me, the whole concept of the sacred black feminine relinquishes me from needing to do the most. Mm. Because I'm already sacred. And also there is a transcendent yet imminent sacred black feminine divine being who's out there moving to and throw and handling things. And so I can do my part and leave the rest up to her and trust. And that was not something I could do with white male God, even though I was taught to have faith and to just believe and to trust that this God has my back and this God shows up as Emmanuel, God is with us. And Mm -hmm. this is the God who said, take, eat, this is my body. At the end of the day, I could not trust that white male God or his minions to have my back when I needed them. And so I, I couldn't, I couldn't relax into black girl mediocre, which is really just black girl human. Yes. Mediocre is actually, I mean, we use it pejoratively because of white male mediocrity, but mediocre is just average and average is human. (laughs) Yep. The average human is average. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. And like part of, you know, like part of that, the journey that I, um, I feel like I'm constantly like wrestling with and thinking about is like how being trained in theological education or like in any predominantly white space, like when you learn a discipline or a skill, like for like, if you let yourself get lost in that world, um, you forget how to be, I don't know, like how to be accessible. And I would say accessible. I mean, like, like you, you start to think like, okay, like, there are ways that I talk that no one really understands. So I must always be the instructor. I'm never like just here in this conversation. I always have some other lens I could be throwing down. And when I throw down that lens, suddenly like I'm bringing power into the room. Like it's just, it just kind of feels like, um, and like I said this to my therapist and then like, I literally like I spent the rest of the day just like thinking about that thought. But I was like, yeah, I feel like the more I bring myself into a space, the more alone I am. Um, because like, I feel like if I unlock and I bring like, here's what I know into the room, like it scares other people and it makes them run. Um, yeah, I think like, that's, I don't know if that's a journey that's familiar to you. Um, but I think like, and oftentimes too, like the, as a black woman in, in these intellectual spaces, you either go that route or when you do bring your vulnerability into the room, it's a thing that gets attacked and used against you and people use it to make you seem like you're weak. Um, and so it's really a trap either way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's why, um, Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes's work has really helped me because she's like, you know, the strong black woman facade is it's kind of like the stress response, like Mm -hmm. in the moment, it's good to step into that because no, during this faculty meeting, I can't just break down in tears. 
that is not a sustainable way to be in this space. That's going to lead to more harm for me. So there's a reason why I have this ability to just be like, it's fine. But then the question, and this gets to the heart of your podcast, how can I find those spaces where I can be a soft black woman? Mm -hmm. Because I do need to cry about it. And I need to let this facade fall away when it is safe. When I can, Mm -hmm. when I do have a haven or I do have a home that I can go to. And I think that's kind of how the stress response is designed, right? When we're actually under attack, our cardiovascular system goes on high alert to prevent us from, you know, being killed. But then can we Mm downregulate afterwards? Because our body is not designed to always be on high alert. And I think the problem of the strong black woman facade is that it's only supposed to be used like in emergency situations, but we then are amongst our black girlfriends who are relatively safe or do have our best in mind and we can't be real or we're in, you know, that's where it's, or with ourselves, gosh, forget the black girlfriends, but what can I be real with myself that I'm hurting, that I'm sad, that I need to, that I need to hold myself, you know? And that's something that I think journeying towards the sacred black feminine has really helped me do. Um, because in order to connect with the sacred black feminine, I have to, I've, I've had to do so much work to connect with my body and with my feelings <laughs> because she's not yes. known in books. She's known through experience. And, um, even just last October, I, w- I went to get a mammogram and, um, was, just had a lot of feelings that came up because it was my first mammogram and they, they ask you about your family history. So then you're thinking about mm-hmm. your mom, your grandmom, and, you know, and I was driving home and I just realized, gosh, I'm feeling so much sorrow and just how different that is than maybe six, seven years ago where I would have just been like, eh, it's fine. But yeah. I actually stopped. I cried. I journaled. I bought myself one flower (laughs) on a budget, but I got me a flower, you know, Um, and just, you know, that's just such a different way of being with my own sorrow and my own grief and my own vulnerability than I used to be able to do. Yeah. You had to learn how to hold yourself. Yeah. I had to learn to mother myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think black women are so under mothered as much as black women are as much as black women are praised for being mothers, it's amazing how many of us are undermothered in terms of nurturing, in yes. terms of softness, in terms of protection, in terms of someone caring for our unique individualized growth. And I think some of that's the patriarchy in black families where parents are just the authority, period. Yeah. Oh, um, and then speaking of parents, like having read, um, just like your way of, of journeying towards independence, Mm -hmm. um, and like releasing the expectation that your parents would get it, um, and finding a way to love them, but still like put up boundaries, like the idea of like loving through letting go and letting go of like the process of like policing other people into believing the way you believe. That's like incredibly difficult and hard. Um, so hard. So yeah. clumsy. 
Yeah. Lots yeah. of ugly, lots of ugly crying. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I also think like, like, you know, throughout this journey, like, I mean, you're wrestling with like perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, and like one of the ideas of God that I feel like so many people have a hard time letting go of is this idea of God as, as being perfect. Um, and we even have, you know, for those who want to stick with like the Bible as their main source of authority, we have stories of the Bible of God, not knowing what's going on. <laughs> and yet this idea of perfection still persists despite mm-hmm. knowing even Jesus made mistakes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. We're, we're able to be soft through, um, to through learning and unlearning um, and through growing and facing challenges and, and being imperfect. Yeah. And I mean, that's such the trap of white patriarchy is just blame the victim, you know, mm-hmm. like you're, you're completely entrapped and now we're going to expect you to perfectly unentrap yourself, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just like, that's bananas, you know, the yes. plantation is violent. The escape from the plantation is going to be clumsy at best and probably just violent because we're in a violent world, you know, the breaking free is not going to look clean and neat and like an artistic masterpiece. It's going to look like somebody heaving and groaning and grunting their way through. And there's going to be collateral damage. And some of that you can go back and make amends for. And some of it is just part of the pain of this world that you don't have to carry, you know, it's not on you to carry. And I think teasing some of those apart is really tricky, you know? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Mm. I know I have a tendency. One of the things that I've been growing in is like what, um, this like inherent belief that if there's a problem, I am the problem, you know, like, And so if there's discord in a relationship or someone is disappointed in me or someone had an expectation I didn't meet, um, I just assume it's because I didn't do what was needed. When really I'm more and more getting to the point where it's like, you know, that's an expectation that you had, but I never agreed to that. Mm. And or, or that's an expectation you had, but I'm human. And I couldn't, even if I wanted to meet it, I, I wasn't able to, you know, it's just saying like, I regret that I wasn't able to, but. I'm not sorry. I don't have to make it up to, you know what I mean? Just kind of like, and I think sometimes that's tricky because um, black women are always expected to carry it all and to provide. Yes. And like the sense of like over, like over responsibility or being overly responsible for everything. Mm -hmm. Like I remember at first I was like, Oh, because that, that's just my ethical framework that we're all interconnected. And, you know, of course, like if you know, something bad happened, it's partially my fault somehow. Mm-hmm. Like you get, uh, at least for me, like that was like kind of like what I've always had. And I thought, okay, like that's just where everybody else needs to be. Because if everybody else was where I'm at, then the world would be a better place. <laughs> and there's like, no, um, I think I, I along the way have realized um, that like there's, there's something wrong if like mutuality um, and the sense of solidarity falls heavily on the, like more heavily on the oppressed, like the call for and the concern for falls more heavily on us than those who are systematically profiting off of our abuse um, and yet need to be constantly reminded 
that they need to be doing something. Um, but it has taken a very long time to get to that point mm-hmm. and to realize, no, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not my fault. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a, there's a gap between what I'm able to offer and what you need. Mm. And we just have to honor that gap. But I think for me, because I felt so far from all that was sacred in the world and because I had gotten a lot of messages in both home church and the broader world that it's my responsibility, that it was, it's been really hard for me to just tell people, yeah, I didn't meet that need. Yeah. And to also be able to articulate like what is clearly like your work in the world and what's someone else's work. Um, and to be like, the rest of you just need to do your jobs, like do, do the thing that you know to do. Um, and I think like part of like being in those spaces, this like predominantly white spaces where you're constantly hearing the message that like, um, we need you and your voice matters here. And without your voice, you know, what are we going to do? You know, like we can't, we can't do this without you, but also knowing that the more you stay, the longer you're there, um, when it gets harder to imagine your life looking differently. Um, and it's also hard to untangle yourself from this, like this need to baby those in power into believing what they, um, or at least like not believing, but like, it's like hard not to be in the role of like babying them into the people who will advocate and fight for your freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in the midst of that, you deny your humanity, you deny your pain coming back to just like some of like what you were able to do in this book and like naming what hurt like comes from like the your ability to voice like you begin to voice your freedom yeah yeah now you've heard me talk about it time and time again but i'm going to remind you that i have a patreon and if you love what you're hearing and you want to support i highly recommend that you become a patron now you can go to patreon.com forward slash dear soft black woman You can also support my writing through Substack. I have a newsletter called A Gentle Landing with Rose J. Percy. And this is me just trying to find ways to talk to a broader audience when and if I can. (laughs) (laughs) There's just so much there. Um, I will say a little bit about this cover. Um, I couldn't help but feel like uh, the woman on the cover looks a bit like Lupita Nyong'o. Oh, interesting. Huh. You see it a little bit? I do see it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. especially with the hair um, and thinking uh, of Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's really beautiful. I, I didn't know this at the time, but the author, Delita Martin, um, made this piece right after she had quit academia and Ooh. become a full-time artist. And so it was in that liminal space of, you know, now she's quite a successful artist, I, I imagine makes 
a, a great living, you know. Um, I, I know I personally am not able to afford any of her books. I, I purchased them <laughs> mm-hmm. from her, so I have a mug. But um, yeah, her her works are out of my price range. But um, so I'm happy for her, you know. But this was right after she had just quit and um, wasn't sure. And so it's I, I I love that I picked the piece that represents that jumping off the plantation and I don't know what's going to happen. I didn't know that when I picked it, picked it, but um, it feels poetic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's amazing for me to hear you like talk about having a journey with an artist who, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. her story parallels yours so much. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I'm just thinking about just like how, like watching you free yourself um, from the like places that you were in, was all like part of inspiring me to think and like dream about like what is possible beyond Mm -hmm. um, like white centered work. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know, I I love um, Dolores Williams' Sisters in the Wilderness. Mm -hmm. Um, And I keep my metaphor for my journey in life is like to say that um, like I may be going through the wilderness, but like what my journey could be the path someone else follows, you know, Mm -hmm. through their wilderness um, and like, I don't know, I, in a lot of ways, like I am just thankful for the path that you've taken because it, um, you know, it was confusing. It was uh, hard and painful, um, but it has like contributed so much to my, my liberation in the world. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, we are just so interconnected. I know I wouldn't be able to, be, I wouldn't have been able to go on my journey if not for liberation theology. And, you know, I was telling someone earlier today that for two or three years before I even had the courage to leave, you know, I had my, I had like a wake up call, but Mm -hmm. then there's a, and I was kind of talking about how there's, you know, the timeline, right? Like thinking of Harriet Tubman, our ancestor, Mm -hmm. what, what, at some point Harriet Tubman would just live in her life on the plantation. Right. Mm -hmm. And then one day she woke up and was like, I'm too sacred for this. And, but there was also probably a period of time before that realization and when she actually left. And so, you know, just kind of naming and honoring these different stages. And I think my period between I'm too sacred for this and I'm actually leaving almost every night I was reading for like an hour, Palestinian liberation theology. Mm. And I, you know, it's like, I couldn't have even had the spiritual imagination to do this work if I hadn't seen Naima Teek talking about Samson as the first unit, um, the first suicide bomber, you know, and just completely interpreting scripture in a way that made sense and honored his people and his, and his movement for liberation, you know? And so it's like, we all benefit so much from the work that other people have done. And when I was, um, when, after I had finished the book, it had to go to Harper legal to make sure that like, you know, they weren't going to get sued. And we all, we had a little bit of a tussle because I named some organizations in, mm. in the book. And, you know, they were like, you know, really, honestly, you should just take out those names and make it anonymous. And I that's that's the easiest way to go about this. And I was just like, no, because not everyone knows these organizations. But for the black and brown people who do, it's going to matter. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I understand that because, you know, Harper, the guy, the the main attorney who was assigned to my book was like, I'm a secular Jew. I don't know who Campus Crusade is. You know what I mean? And (laughs) And that's fine. And I know people will come to the book and not know what Campus Crusade is. But for the black and brown people who do know, it's going to help them on their journey to know 
that I went through this, you know, so I fought to keep those names in there. Um, and we, we changed some of the other language around it to decrease the likelihood that, that we get sued, you know, but we kept the names. And I think that's important. I think it's important for people, for us to be able to tell our stories with as much detail as possible so that other people can find themselves in our stories. And, and then they can tell their stories with as much boldness as possible. So other people can find themselves in their stories. And it's like, like we're literally becoming ancestors for each other. Yeah. Living ancestors for each other by sharing our stories of liberation and the way that we found our way. And everyone's story is going to be different, but every time I hear a story, whether it's the theological story or a autobiographical story, or whether it's a poem or a song, I'm emboldened. And the way I've seen black trans folks find their divinity, I'm like, okay, if they can do it, I can do it. You know, like black trans folks deal with so much more oppression than I do. And yet they're convinced that they're sacred. All right, then we got work to do. You know, <laughs> like it's so inspiring to hear. Yeah, the story. Yes, so liberating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so liberating. Yeah. Yes. Um, before we move on to our time of affirmation, um, I just want to hear a little bit about what is next or where do you go from here? Uh. If you're in this book, <laughs> it's in the world. I'm also thinking about like some part of that question could be like, what what kind of communities are you dreaming up these days? Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So um, just super, I have like the big, like visionary goal, like plan or ideas. And then I have practical ones. So practically mm-hmm. speaking, this spring, we're launching a virtual Black Madonna pilgrimage. Mm. And so we're going to go and go deep into each of the Black Madonnas in the book um, and allow them to transform us. So that'll be happening this spring. It'll be virtual since with COVID, there's just so much uncertainty still. Um, my hope is that in 2023, we'll be able to do two things, um, practically speaking. One, host um, sacred Black feminine experiences here in the United States that would be um, maybe a long weekend or something like that. Because again, it's not about how can I download information to people, Mm -hmm. but really how can we be in a space and experience. Um, And then also I'd like to take some Black women on a Black Madonna pilgrimage, Um, but it's just going to be open to Black women and maybe just Black people um, because I am not going to be in the pilgrimage business. No, Karen, I'm not taking <laughs> Black Madonnas. Um, and because <laughs> you know, Karen's the one who's going to sign up. Karen from Ohio is mm-hmm. going to be there with all her friends, <laughs> you know. Yes, and um, just here to like, you know, <laughs> like don't even pay attention to me. Like, I'm like not here, like, just don't um, even. Mm-hmm. But wait, hold on, I have a question about this. <laughs> and also, yes, but what about me, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so I want to do that, and then also just me personally, I have so many, um things that I'm exploring in my spirituality as I move more, um, as, you know, I think there's two, two really pretty th- beautiful alchemic things happening. One, I'm, um, harvesting so much more of Christianity than I thought that I would have even been interested in maybe three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually find myself reading the Psalms more than I ever have more than I have in this, the last few years and stuff. So I'm really curious to see what sort of hush Harbor magic I make of that. Um, and then I'm also getting much more connected to and um, my ancestral religions, 
too. And so that the invitation of the Black Madonna is to go deeper into the ancient goddesses that um, that she represents, and that's Isis, and that's Black Artemis, and that's Oshun. Mm. And you know, it's it's you know, I've got to spend some time with some Candomblé priestesses down in Brazil, and you know, just seeing the way that they work with the Black Madonna and with um, Yoruba goddesses, and it's just it, there's so much. There's so much to see and to, to be transformed by and to participate in. So, Wow. That is all so exciting. And like, I am just excited to journey with you and to see like what unfolds. Thank yeah. Thank you so much. And so um, let's end with our affirmation to the soft black yeah. woman listening. So I'm reading from page 162 of my book, God is a Black Woman, and it's the last paragraph of the chapter called She Whose Thick Thighs Save Lives. I am Black and I am beautiful. I don't care what the Bible translation says about me. I am Black and I am beautiful. I don't care what society's banners are saying about me. I am black and I am beautiful. I don't care how long you say, but all lives matter to me. I am black and I am beautiful. I don't care what the prep school boys told me. I am black. And I am beautiful. So fuck off, you princes of Maine, you kings of New England. I am black and I am beautiful. Period. Mm. Ashe. Ashe. Thank you so much, Dr. Christina Cleveland. Thank you for having me, Rose. Wonderful to see your face and to join your community in this conversation. I'm honored. Yes. Thank you. I'm, I, the honor is all mine. <laughs>